Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together and to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we study and show us what it is you would, lo- you would have us to learn from this. In your son's name, amen. All right, Matthew chapter 21, starting at verse 33. This is Jesus. He's continuing talking to the people uh, after he's cleansed the temple. We've gone through the triumphant entry into, into Jerusalem. They've cried Hosanna. And we're two or three days into this. And remember, when we, from the triumphant entry to his death is only about a week. So we're, we're looking at the last week of Jesus, and we've mentioned in the past that the last week of Jesus covers about 30% of all the gospel in the four gospels is about the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, it was what's freshest in the disciples' mind, and it's where Jesus really changes from you know, the first two and a half years or so, three, three and a half years, he's very gentle with people in that last week he is they're they're trying to get him and he's basically in their face <laughs> with all of his conversations back to them uh, he's come in he says I'm the king I'm, and he's and he's very much challenging them now for authority and they're going to be seeking to destroy Jesus and we're going to see a lot of questions coming back at him you know there are a lot of questions whose authority of this and they're trying to trap him in something that they can execute him for or at least be able to use against him. And so we're seeing all of this starting to play out. And in verse 33, it goes, Here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it around about and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and, and let, let, lent it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took their ser- his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his uh, inheritance. And when they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him, when the Lord therefore the vineyard comes, what will he do to the husbandmen? And they answered him and said, He will be miserably destroy those wicked men and, and will let out his vineyard to another husbandman, which shall render unto him the fruits of in their seasons. Alright, so we have this story that Jesus is telling to the scribes and Pharisees. And remember, they're already upset with him because he has you know, cleanse the temple. And we talked about the cleansing of the temple. He kicked out the, the people selling the animals and changing the money and all these things that they were doing to keep, basically to keep people from worshiping God and make them rich in the process for those who were willing to pay for the privilege of worshiping. And so here he's going, there was a certain householder who planted a vineyard and hedged it around and dug a well and built a tower, and he rented it out unto the husband and went into a far country. And you pretty much know the story as you come down to this. is talking about God creating this world and or the nation of Israel. All right? I believe it's the world in general, but 
it can also be very clearly be Israel when it starts up because they're supposed to be ministering to God. And it says he's built everything. He's, he's built a perfect vineyard. He put a hedge around it to keep the enemies out. He, kept, he dug a wine press and a tower. You know, they use a tower to keep everything warm and, and see what was going on, the wine press. It says he's built him this beautiful garden. <laughs> and it kind of takes us back to the Garden of Eden in this process. And he says he, gave, he rented it out and then he went away on a far journey. And this kind of... We look at this, and God has stepped out of this world. He originally created this world for people to rule. Adam and Eve were created to rule this world and have dominion on it, over this world. And that's what he said, you know, in the very beginning. Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over everything. And what that level of dominion was, I think it meant dominion of everything. He was, we were created to rule this world. It didn't take us long to get rid of that rule. One, one rule they were given, don't eat the fruit, and they sinned and gave Satan dominion of this world, and he has been called ever since the God of this world. And at the cross, Jesus took that title away from him, but hasn't come to claim it yet, which he will do on the second coming of Christ, when he will run a thousand-year reign on this world. But for this time since the cross till today, 2,000 years, rough, give or take a century or two, Satan is still thinking he's ruling, but he no longer has the title deed of this world. It was taken away. We gave up dominion of this world, or Adam and Eve gave up dominion of this world to Satan, who then became the god of this world because they gave it up. Well, once it's given up, we can't, we can't take it back. Jesus had to take it back. Jesus died and was resurrected and took back the title deed of this world, but he has not claimed the title deed of this world, uh, claimed this world yet. Uh, which happens, if you think about this, what happens when you, sell, when, when you buy a house? You get the title deed of the house, but technically it's not yours until the debt, debt's completely paid off. But yet it is yours. And it's kind of, a, kind of a mixed bag. My wife and I have a title to the house. It's our house, the deed to the house. We pay all the taxes. And, but we, well, actually, we have, we, well, we have a title as well because it's a mobile home. We have a title as well as the deed. So we, it is our house. We have a, a lien against it. And, but in Jesus' case, he took it and he just hasn't claimed it. You know, for him, it's just a short period of time. You know, scriptures tell us that a day unto the Lord is like a, a thousand years is as a day and a day is a thousand years. You know, for, for him, it's no big deal to wait 2,000 years to claim this earth. And you know, he's going to claim it soon. And he's going to reign over this world for a thousand years, a millennial, the millennial reign. At the end of the tribulation period, Jesus comes back with his bride. You know, and it's kind of an amazing war. He comes in, Satan, Satan gathers up the armies of the world to fight against God. Jesus just speaks and, every, and the war's over. You know, pretty, pretty good war. You know, we ride behind him in victory and he just speaks and the war's over and everybody, all the enemies dead. Uh, the ultimate weapon that any... any king or power or country wants is just to be able to say, 
you know, the war's over and, and, and destroy everything without any loss on their side. Well, Jesus will accomplish that. He will come back and he will step on um, Mount Talibet. It will split and he will reign from Egypt. Oh, Egypt, yeah, yeah. Jerusalem <laughs> for a thousand years. This is the, basically the story he's telling. The, the, the king went, he built this thing and he went away. Now, doesn't mean that he totally abandoned it because he's sending people. And it, and it kind of tells us in, in verse 3, when the time of 34, when the time came for fruit to do near, he sent in servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits. God has constantly been sending his servants on this world. And we see them in the, in the form of the prophets going to them and saying, okay, now's the time for you to follow Follow God. It's time to follow God. It's time to follow God. It's time to time to pay your tithes and offerings. It's time to give God what is what belongs to Him. And we see in the story that they, in uh, verse 35, it says the husband took his servants. They beat one. They killed another. They stoned another. And this is literally a picture of the prophets. If you read about the prophets, Israel was very brutal to the prophets. Um, history tells us that Isaiah was sawn in half. They put him in a, in a trunk of a tree, and, in a hollow tree, and they sawed him in half. Uh, Jeremiah was always being thrown into, into prisons. Many of these prophets, when you read through 1 uh, Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, you see Israel being very harsh on all these different prophets. And here's what God says. You've, you've killed some. You, beat, you just beat some of them. You killed some of them. You were disrespectful to some. And we see over and over how the world treats God's servants. And even in our day, if you read through Fox's Book of Martyrs, it goes through millions of Christians being, being uh, martyred in a period of time that it covers for history. But you realize that in our day, more people are dying each day for the gospel as a martyr than all of the Fox's Book of Martyrs. Millions of Christians are dying every year as martyrs. How come we don't hear about it? Because it's of no interest at all to, the, to our, to our new, news media. No interest at all. Mostly because they don't care either. The only ones you might hear about it is if you listen to TBN or Pat Robinson or you listen to the Voice of Martyrs. So the NPR is a liberal organization that doesn't care either. When Christians die, most of the world does not care. The only time we ever hear about it is like when the Muslims killed off all those uh, Egyptian Coptic Christians and they put it on the broadcasts and it became such big news that it could not be hidden because they, they broadcast it. So all of a sudden, you know, the news media is reporting, but how long did the reporting last? One, two days, uh, and that was it. But over the last decade or so, you've had whole villages wiped out because they're Christian villages. In the Sudan, I don't know about so much now, but 10 years ago, the life expectancy of a Christian in Sudan 10 years ago was less than 90 days. You became a Christian 
and you died. That is how violent it was, and probably still is. I mean, I haven't kept up on all the different places. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. The ones that died, they lived there. They become a Christian, and a village, several villages became Christians, and they wiped out entire villages. In Indonesia and Micronesia, both, you become a Christian, and your life expectancy is that of a dead man. You don't last long, and yet Christianity is thriving in all these places, which is kind of an amazing thought. People are just saying, they've got something I want. During the, during the Roman era that the Christian church was growing in, the life expectancy of a, a Christian in many of those times was very low. Nero, Nero was killing as many Christians as he could get his hands on. And many Dionysia and other of these emperors of Rome went in vicious cycles to kill as many Christians as they could, and, and Christianity just thrived under them anyway. And America is kind of this little subset where nothing happens to Christians yet. In Europe, nothing major usually happens to Christians, but there's more depth, more deaths than Christians there. But these places where Christianity reigned for so many, so many uh, millennia are starting to change. The rest of the world, it's pretty dangerous to be a Christian. In Africa, the Middle East, uh, India, India, Asia, uh, Micronesia, all these different places, especially places where the Muslims rule, it's pretty dangerous to be a Christian. China is kind of an interesting place. China is, has the, what did, what did I read the other day, second or third largest population of Christians, even though being a Christian is illegal, still in, in China. But it's tolerated in China. It's, it's not allowed, but it's not something they're going to kill you for being, come, for being as a nation. Uh, so it's a fairly safe place to actually be a Christian at this point. Unless you want to be a very strong Christian and, and witness and everything. Then you can be put into jail and everything. Uh, one of the strongest Christian nations right now is South Korea. South Korea has two or three of the largest churches in the world. They are sending more missionaries out to the, to the world than any other country at all. Yeah, I don't know about that, but I know for Christian for Christianity, they have they have a church that's a half a million people in one church. Yeah, but I mean nothing compared to the churches there in Korea. I mean it's we talk we in America we're talking a big church being ten thousand, maybe twenty thousand. You know, there's places in South Korea that are that large, and there's many churches in South America that are that large. Yeah. America is way behind the curve as far as Christian Christianity right now. Where do they meet at? Huh? Where do they meet at? No, you wouldn't. A lot of them are at homes. Yeah. A lot of them are at homes. They have one church and and they have ten services on a Sunday morning and and then their weeknights are all scattered out through the through the town in in, in homes. It's a amazing amazing thing. Now I don't know a whole lot about what they're teaching and everything in those churches, but I just know 
there's huge churches out there. And South Korea right now is the, the leading sender of missionaries. And South America is becoming a big missionary sender. And here in America, we used to be the largest send, sender of missionaries out. And now, as I told you the other night, we're getting more missionaries coming to America than we're sending. Because they're looking at America and saying, that's a place that needs Christianity. And it really is sad to say, but it is, we need Christ, true Christianity here in America. You talk to people and they say they're Christians. And, we, you know, and as I've taught you, you, know, you ask them, what does that mean? And you find out that they're not true Christians when you ask them, what do you mean? How do you, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, my mom and dad were a Christian. Well, big deal. You know, God doesn't have any grandchildren. Yeah, you don't inherit Christianity by, because your mom and dad were a Christian. Oh, well, you know, I, I, I go to church. Well, that's wonderful, but what does, that, what does it mean that you're a Christian? You know, you could live in a garage, but that doesn't make you a car. You can come to church every time the doors are open, and that doesn't make you a Christian. Okay? We've got to keep in mind on what it means to be a Christian is to be a follower of Christ in a relationship with Christ. Anything other than that is not Christianity. And yet in America, when you ask somebody, are you a Christian? And you know, it's not as much as it used to be. I remember in the 70s, you asked somebody if they were a Christian. Well, of course, I'm an American. And, you know, and that used to be the answer you got all the time. I go, well, no, let's find out what, what it means to be a Christian. Now, let's talk about what it means to be a Christian. Just because you're in America, you're not a Christian. Uh, just because you go to church, you're not a Christian. Just because you read your Bible doesn't necessarily mean you're a Christian. You know, we, we need to be able to look at that. And in America, we got a lot of people who say they're Christians that aren't Christians. And all through history, much has been done in the name of Christianity that has nothing to do with Christianity. The Catholic Church during the uh, early parts of the, the second century were sending people into Jerusalem and crusades to win back Jerusalem. And they did everything in the name of Christ, and there was nothing in the Bible about going and trying to win back Jerusalem for Christianity. And, we saw, and so there's a lot of anger and bitterness in that region against Christianity because things were done in the name of Christianity. Many Jews hate Christians because of what Hitler did in the name of Christianity. You know, he preached his own form of Christianity, which had nothing to do with the Bible. And he did much in the name of Christianity. And so th there's all this thing that goes on that people look at and say, well, if that's Christianity, I want nothing to do with it. Well, I don't want anything to do with that kind of Christianity either. Because it wasn't Christianity. We have to acknowledge that it was done in the name of Christianity and then try to help them understand what was different about it. And here he says, he sends his, work, he sends his people into this uh, to get his money and they, they beat, his, beat his servants. Then it says he sends them more. And they beat those servants and kill those servants. And it, Jesus is drawing a picture. And it doesn't take the Pharisees long to know what he's talking about. <laughs> Especially when he gets to the, after they answer back, you know, they really all of a sudden see what he's talking about. Because the Jews have been pretty brutal over the years, over, the, over their millennia of existence, to the prophets. You know, we always look at these stories and the prophets and say, Wasn't, wouldn't, it wonder, wouldn't it be wonderful to do, do all the things they did? You know, well, you look a little closer at their story, and it wasn't a wonderful experience. Elijah's being chased everywhere he goes and being called a, 
a troublemaker and uh, you got Jeremiah who's being called a traitor because he's telling them that God's going to destroy, destroy Jerusalem and put him into captivity. And he's being called a traitor to the nation. Uh, he gets called, you know, you're a traitor. You're, you're trying to keep us from winning the battle by telling us that we need to surrender and just give up. And they kept throwing him into prison. Yeah. Kind of an amazing thing. Uh, Elijah, the king sends his army. If you don't remember, if you don't remember the story, I love this one. He sends a hundred men to go arrest Elijah, and they go, they knock on the door. You're under arrest, and he says, "Okay, you're struck blind." And they, you know, our, our fire comes down and, and kills them all. Next guy comes up, knocks on the door. You're under arrest for treason. Fire falls down. This is the third or fourth guy, and the fourth guy comes in with a little more humility. He goes, "You know, I'm just doing my job." The king says that you're under arrest. Would you please come with us and not kill us? And he went with them. Uh, but you know, this was happening all the time. Look at Moses, one of their ones that they consider their greatest prophet. How many times in the Pentateuch did we read and they picked up stones to, to, to stone Moses because of how upset they were? And they grumbled and complained and griped and said, we're going back. At one time they started to take a vote on who was going to lead them back to Egypt. And, you know, this, was, this is their revered prophet, one of their revered prophets that got treated this way. And so Jesus is given this, and then he says, then, I sent you, then the husband said, I'll send my son. Surely they will respect the son. Uh, and this is kind of naive in one sense, you know, because if they didn't want to listen to the, other, the, the servants, why would they listen to the son? And then this goes over in their time, you know, if you sent the prince, it, they would probably be listened to. Uh, unfortunately, usually the prince also had an army <laughs> so that he would be listened to. And in, in Jesus' case, he's being sent alone. Being sent alone. And they say, this is the son. If we kill him... Who else will the inheritance go to? There's no other son. There's no other, no other place for the inheritance to go to. We'll kill the son. And they killed the son and cast him out. And then Jesus asked them a question. What will the Lord of that vineyard do? And, you, and they didn't even hesitate. In verse 41, you look at what they said. He will, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and, and, and then rent out his vineyard to, to other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits of his seasons. They understood the, the evilness of this picture. In verse 38 there, how did these renters figure that they get the boy's inheritance? I don't... They say seize his inheritance, so they're going to take it by force. Their idea is they've killed the son and you know, they now are in possession of it. And the, the adage that we have in this day is that possession is nine-tenths of the law has always been the case. If you own something, it's harder to kick you out than if you're trying to take it, but even though the law is on your side. And this is the mentality of here. Why does, anybody, why does anybody do something wrong at all? And it's kind of funny because I get to talk to these guys all the time. Well, why did you? Sometimes I'll ask them, well, why did you? Well, it just seemed like a good thing at the time, or uh, I just wanted it. I've heard that answer. I just wanted it, and they took it. 
you know, people when they do something wrong are not looking at the long-term consequences of the action. But neither do we. When we commit a sin, we're thinking, this is making me happy at this moment, otherwise we wouldn't do it. You know, we don't necessarily think in those terms, but if, it wasn't, if we didn't think we were going to be happy doing it, we wouldn't do it. And we don't think of the consequences down the road for the action that we're doing, whatever the action might be. Uh, we just think it's, it's going to be fun. I'm going to enjoy myself or whatever, whatever it is that we're doing. There's some element of enjoyment in there, otherwise we wouldn't do it. And we think that the enjoyment is going to be more beneficial than the long-term punishment if we consider the long-term punishment at all. And there are times when you say, well, I think it'd just be enough fun that I'm going to do it and I think I'm going to have more fun than the punishment. But most of the time, we're not even thinking about the punishment. They weren't thinking about the possibility of a punishment. They're saying, we kill the son and who, who else is he going to give? The, he's not going to care. He hasn't been around for a long time. He's been sending servants and now he sent his son. You know, maybe, maybe he's dead. Maybe we don't have to you know, deal with him at all. We've killed the son. Maybe it's going to be ours and nobody's going to come take it from us. Uh, but again, it goes back to the same thing we do all the time in sin. We commit a sin and we're, we commit it not thinking about the consequences that are going to come our way. Even though the Bible is very clear that there are always consequences for every sin that we commit. And yet, I do it, we all do it, we commit a sin without thinking about what is going to come our way later on. And then it comes our way, and then usually we blame God for the consequences. God, why did you let this come my way? And God could point, well, you did this, and you did this, and you did this. So it is what you deserve. And yet, how many times do we kind of look at God and go, God, what, you know, why did you do this? Why did I get this spanking, God? You know, when, you, when you were a kid or do you, when you had kids, do you ever remember you know, disciplining your kids and they're kind of looking at why are you doing this to me? You, know, you, just, you just took away all my fun. You know, they don't, oftentimes they refuse to connect the discipline to the activity that caused the discipline, and yet we do the same thing with God all, often. Maybe not all the time, but often. You know, God, I just don't understand why all these bad things are happening to me. Sure, I sinned a lot last week, but why, why are all these things going on today? <laughs> that was the attitude of the husband, the husband and that we're keeping his thing. Where we get, we've got rid of the servants, we got rid of the son. You know, maybe, maybe he doesn't have anybody stronger in his, at his beck and call. And then, you know, we kind of look also, you know, Satan's attitude toward God. He keeps fighting God for all these, all, you know, for you know, close to 6,000 years now, and he's going to come to the tribulation period where he gets a little more free hand and does a lot of things, and yet he keeps fighting even though the Bible says he's going to lose. And yet he keeps fighting. I don't know if he's deluded himself and hoping that somehow what God said is not going to come true. Uh, if he just wants to cause as much damage to God as possible. I don't know what his motivation is, but it's something that when we're following God, oftentimes we don't comprehend the motivation of those that are against him full-hearted. He's the prince of delusion. Huh? He's the prince of delusion. He's the prince of lies. He's, you know, he's the father of all lies. I mean, that have some delusion 
and he's lied to himself, he's lied to other people. But you know, when people are following away from God, they do have this habit of lying to themselves. There's not going to be a consequences. There's, you know, we as Christians do that. Uh, we usually are aware, though, that there's consequences if we've been well taught. And we still do it, do things that, in the hope that maybe we won't get the consequences that God tells us is going to definitely happen to us. I think that Amy's closer to it. We're born with a sin nature and we want to sin. So we lie to ourselves that there's not going to be consequences or that the consequences will not be that bad. So yes, we are also deluding ourselves, you know, because God says, you know, he is going to send his consequences. Be sure that your sin will find you out. You're, be sure that your, your sins will be shouted from the housetops. I mean, God gives us plenty of warnings that when we do wrong, they will come out, there will be discipline, there will be consequences for it, and yet, whether we delude ourselves with, I can handle the consequences because I'm going to enjoy this, or we delude ourselves that somehow we're going to get away with it, in spite of what God tells us, I don't know all of why we do what we do, but we all know that we do it. So we need to look at ourselves and go, why do I sin? Well, because I think that I'm going to enjoy it more than I, than the consequences are going to be later on. Sometimes Ultimately, huh? Sometimes it's just habit, too. Could be habit, but most of the time it's, I either delude myself that the consequences aren't going to be as bad as the fun I'm going to have, or I delude myself into somehow I'm going to get away with it. Okay, and that's worse. I mean, it's bad enough that I just say, well, I think I... I can handle, you know, that, that's the kid who says, well, all I'm going to get is a spanking on this and I can handle the spanking. And then you change them up and you give them something they really don't want to give up and, and all of a sudden, you know, the problem is worse. And in actuality, what we normally do is we go, if I commit this sin, this is probably what's going to happen. I can handle that consequence. But the consequence for sin is always more than we anticipate it being. Always, always more. Well, you know, God, I think that I want to go out and drink tonight. You know, I can handle being drunk and, and having a hangover tomorrow. No big deal. I can, I can handle that. And then you find out that you hit somebody on the way home and wrecked your car and, and you're in jail when you, the next day. And all of a sudden, your consequence is a lot more than you anticipated it being. And you're facing huge penalties in, in, your, in your life. Well, God, I think that uh, a one-night stand would be really good. I'll, uh, we'll use protection, and I'll never see the person again and in, you know, end up with a sexually transmitted disease in the process. You think, okay, I'm doing everything I can. There won't be any consequences and end up with a long-term consequence. Consequences almost always are worse than we ever thought they might be. And, and these ones I'm taking to the extreme, but it could be just a simple thing that you blew all your money that night and have no money for the rest of the rest of the month. You know, it could, you know, any number of things could be the problem, and we just don't always think of all the consequences. And I will say that's why we do what we do because we, somehow we think we can, you know, God, I, if I do this, this is what I think is going to happen. I can handle that consequence, and that's why we do the wrong things. Or, as in the case of Eve, you know, there's this idea that there's a really great blessing in disobeying God. 
you know, you'll be like gods. Well, that sounds really good. I'll be like God. I, then I don't have to worry about you know, being dying because I'll be like God and I can make my life longer or something. You know, and that's what I'm saying. You know, the two sides, we either think we can handle the consequences or we think that the plus side of that sin is so great that it doesn't matter what the consequence is. And this is what they're saying here. You know, we're, we'll kill the sun. It'll be, it'll be ours. We'll have it. You know, what's this guy going to do? We're, we're in a, a hedged-in hedged in vineyard. He's not going to come and destroy too much of the vineyard because he's gonna, if he comes and he fights us with, a, with an army, he's going to destroy the, the hedge. He'll destroy the vineyard just to get to us. Now nah, he would never do that. So we've got, we've got this vineyard. And we sometimes will do that. You know, God, you know, God would do too much destruction. You know, look at, look at how bad the testimony of him would be if he takes us out because, you know, we're a Christian and, you know, this one little sin's not going to be that big a deal to the testimony. God's not going to punish me in a great way. And you look at somebody like uh, Swagger who, you know, had committed adultery, had a huge ministry, lost his whole ministry in the process of his discipline. What will God do for discipline? Whatever it takes because he's not going to allow his name to be drugged through the mud in the long run. And here these guys, as you, as you said, they think they, they think they got it made. They've killed the son. They've killed, they've killed the servants that he sent. You know, they've had no trouble killing all these people. And they've faced no consequences yet. And so often you'll see this. You see it in the Psalms where David says, God, you know, why are the heathen getting away with all of this? You know, you punish me and, you know, for my little things, and yet look at the big sins they're committing and getting away with it. And don't some of us do the same thing? God, look at these people, you know, they're these movie stars and singers leading these miserable lifestyles that are dragging, dragging your rules through the, through, the, through the mud, and look how they've got everything. They've got the big houses, and they've got all this fame, and they've got money. Now, we don't know what's going on beyond that, but, you know, we look at them and say, look at all they're getting away with. Look at our government officials that are cheating, cheating everybody and, and making millions of dollars. They go in broken and come out, you know, multimillionaires out of their service. And go, God, you know, why? Why can they be so defiant to you and yet get blessed? And God says, well, just wait. They'll pay the piper just as you have to. And usually, if you got to know any of these people, you'd really realize how miserable they are in most cases. And we know that many of the superstars are miserable because you start reading later on that they're addicted to drugs and alcohol and, and they're doing all these things, trying to find peace. And they're not at peace like we think they are. And because we have this illusion that if you have lots of stuff, you'll be happy. You know, and how many people have that illusion? You know, you know, people, you'll tell people, you know, most people who win the lottery wish they had never won the lottery because their life becomes so miserable. And what's the very first thing most people will say? Well, I'd love to have that chance. Give me, you know, let me have that chance. I'd love to take that chance. Almost everybody who wins wishes they hadn't, and you think you're going to be the one that will be excited, to, you know, and have your life made perfect. If you aren't content with little, you will never be content with much. Solomon gave us that information in Ecclesiastes. And he's going, you know, I searched for God, I searched for peace in God in all these different things. And he goes down the list. Almost anything you want to say that anybody could ever do, he, he did it in work. 
He did it in money. He did it in, in women. You know, he, he had just a few wives and concubines. You know, couldn't, couldn't even see all of them in, in three-year period of time, one, one a night. He had so many. You know, if, he, if he saw a woman that he wanted, he took her. You know, why? Because he was looking for satisfaction in that area. He did good works. He did all kinds of things. He, he collected alcohol, he said. He collected, you know, probably got into the, whatever drugs they had in their day. He probably did everything, and he listed in Ecclesiastes and says, it was all vanity. Everything I did, he did in, in excess, he said, and none of it fulfilled. And when we look at people's lives, in the long run, nothing fulfills them unless they're happy with God. And if we're not happy with God, we'll never be happy with anything else. Which is why Paul said, I've learned to be content with much and with little. Why? Because his contentment was in God. And he said, God, if you want to give me a lot of stuff, praise God, I've got lots of money to give, you know, lots of money to, give to you. I can, I can do all these things for you. If you give me nothing, I'm still going to worship and, and preach and teach for you and still be faithful. So the, the question for us is, what does it take for us to be content? Am I content with God or not? And this is very interesting when I talk to a lot of people and they're going, well, I just, I'm just not happy. How can, you, how can you be happy? Well, I'm happy because of God. Well, that can't be enough. Have you ever been asked, you know, why do you go to church all the time? You know, don't you ever do anything other than church? You know, uh, you, know, how, you know, how can you be happy just reading God's word and going to church? You, know, you should be, you know, doing this, that, and the other thing, you know, to, to find your happiness. And, you know, the question I would ask, encourage you to ask them, if they're asking you to, to do all that, ask them, do those things make you happy? Are you really happy with all these things that you're doing? And the answer you're going to get is no. They may be happy when they're doing it, but it's not giving them long-term happiness. Same, same idea of when you buy a new car. I don't know how many people have ever bought a new car. I had one in my lifetime. Brand new. Brand new, brand new car. Nobody else had ever driven it. It was a brand new car. Uh, how long does it take for and even a good new car, a good used car, you know, it's brand new to you. It has everything you want. The radio works, the, the, the heat it works, the air conditioning works, the windows all work, you know, it's not scratched up and dinged up. How long does it take before that car is no longer all that exciting? The first ding, the, the first breakdown, uh, after, especially if it's a new car, a brand new car, you know, two or, three, two or three years down the road and all of a sudden all these new cars have, you know, all these new features that your car doesn't have. And it's like the car that you were perfectly happy with no longer gives you that contentment. That's why you lease it. <laughs> you know, the, the, the brand new house that you buy that has everything that you wanted in the house or, and all, you know, go a couple years down the road and and somebody else gets something that your house doesn't have. A friend of yours gets something that you don't have in your house. And it's like, wow, I'd really like to have my house doesn't have one of those. My house doesn't have a spa. My house doesn't have an exercise room. It doesn't, it doesn't have a, a pool. It doesn't, you know, and you go down the long list and all of a sudden it's like, wow, this house is pretty miserable. 
Keeping up with the Joneses. But, but it's also just n human nature. We get tired of what we have and want something else. You know, so we need to be able to say, my contentment is in God. Whatever he wants me to have, I will be content with. Now, that takes a lot of growing. It takes a lot of trust in God. And when our trust is completely in God, sometimes he will bless us with great blessings as long as we will continue to be focused on him. Most of the time when people get great blessings in their life, it takes them away from God. And I've seen it many, many times. Somebody's following God. They're coming to church all the time. They're, they're worshiping God. They're giving their tithes and offerings. And, and God starts giving them blessings. And the next thing you know, you haven't seen him for three or four months, and you go, well, where have you been? Well, you know, I, I had to go up to the cabin for the summer, you know, the, the, sun, the vacation cabin for the summer. I had to use my RV. I had to go, you know, I had to use my, you know, my camper. I had you know, been using my quad, you know. And you're going, okay, the very things that God has blessed you with took you away from him. Yeah. Was there long-term contentment in God? Nope, their, their long-term contentment was in the stuff that they got from God. And we want to be very careful about that because it is so easy to do. God, I'm blessing, you've blessed me, you're blessing me, you're blessing me, and all of a sudden you're going, well, God, you know, I've been giving you a tenth of my, my $5,000 a month uh, income and you know, you've jumped it up to 10,000. God, do you really need, do you really need, you know, uh, my thousand dollars a month, God. You know that I can I can buy a lot of toys for a thousand dollars a month, God. You, you know, and we start getting stingy with him. Because all of a sudden, that the blessing looms a lot higher than what what we've been giving, and we want to be very careful that our contentment stays with God always. And to me, and I've said this for a long time, my joy has always come with going to church and enjoying Bible studies and teaching and, and all of that, listening to the Bibles being taught. Doesn't mean that I'm opposed to going camping once in a while and going on vacation. But even when I go on vacation, like I did this last, you know, last month, we were in church. We were actually in church Sunday, Wednesday night and, and Sunday morning uh, to worship God because that's what I do. You know, that's just who I am. When I go on vacation, it's not a vacation from God, it's a vacation that includes God. And you know, so we look at this and we say, okay God, where are you in our life? How important are you in our life? And the answer that the scribes and Pharisees gave him was, you know, hey, that landowner is gonna come and take his land back. He's going to hire an army, or in this case, usually the landowner in this kind of a vineyard was the king. He says he's going to bring his army. Verse 42, Jesus said unto him, Did you never read in the scriptures, The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to the nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on the stone that shall be broken, but whosoever shall, it shall fall on will be ground into powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he spoke of them. And they sought to lay hands on him, 
But they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. So Jesus continues in his story and he says, he quotes Psalms. Have you not heard that the stone which the builders rejected became the cornerstone? And this goes back to an old story of a stone that was for the temple that they kind of lost because they didn't realize how important it was. And then they found it and it was the cornerstone, the one that the cornerstone fits in the top of an arch and holds the arch of rocks all together. And that's what the cornerstone is and the chief, chief stone and is what is the arch stone. If you've seen the, the stone arches, uh, they go up and they start arcing and the cornerstone fits just perfect to push all these stones into the ark and, and holds them together. Without that cornerstone, if you want the whole ark to fall down, you just take the cornerstone out and it will either fall immediately or very shortly, you know, the first, first ground that shakes. So the cornerstone holds it all together. And Jesus basically saying, you're rejecting the sun, you're rejecting the cornerstone, but it's what God says is the most important one. The Father says it's important. And he says, the, the kingdom is going to be taken from you. And here we see, he's talking to the leaders. They know now who he's talking about because he's being blunt. The kingdom is going to be taken from you. You all who think you are import, so important that this will never happen. You think you're the religious leaders. You think you're the, the ones that are so important. He goes, it's going to be taken from you and given to people that are going to treat the kingdom with honor. And in Jesus' day, the religious leaders had become the political leaders. And they were subject to Rome, and yet they weren't subject to Rome. If you look at the history, when Rome would come in to, a, to an area... If the people surrendered to Rome, they got a lot of freedom in their, in their way of ruling. If you didn't surrender to Rome, they conquered you anyway and you became complete servants to them. Israel capitulated to Rome and their one big concern was, we want to keep our religion. And that was a big sacrifice for Rome because religion has always been a centerpiece of a nation's identity. So Rome usually did not let nations keep their religion. They wanted you to follow their religion, which the cornerstone of the Roman religion was all the different pantheon of gods, but also and more important, Caesar was God. And you had to accept him as God, which is why many Christians were martyred under the Roman Empire because when they decided to make life difficult for the Christians, they would arrest a Christian or actually bring you in front of the town and they would bring everybody in front of the town, not just Christians. And you had to go to this altar, take a little pinch of flour, put it on the fire and declare uh, Curios Caesar, which means Caesar is Lord. Christians would come in and they would call, say, Jesus is Lord. Now, not all Christians did this. Not all Christians were willing to lose their life because there, there were some of them that just couldn't do it. And, but a large percentage of Christians would come up and say, no, I can't do this because Jesus is Lord. And then they would be executed. And the executions were not nice. And, and if you want to read a very hard book to read, read Fox's Book of Martyrs and see how Christians were killed. 
and embarrassed and 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 uh, shown to you know were just embarrassed in the way that they were doing. They would parade people around naked, and then they would kill them. They would quarter them. They would they would you know put them on crosses. Nero Nero loved to dip Christians into to wax and tar and use them for for uh, torches in his gardens. And that wasn't just Nero that did that, but he was the most famous for it. Uh, you know, they, they were very cruel to, to the Christians. Many Christians were killed just because, by putting a board on them, and they just kept putting rocks on until they were crushed to death. You know, underneath, a, between a board and the ground. You know, they did all kinds of things to kill people and to do things that were just cruel. And the Romans were nothing compared to the Spanish and French Inquisitions during the uh, 1000 to 1400. They, they took cruelty to, to a very high degree. And people have suffered for Christ. And he says, you know, God, God's going to take the kingdom from you. You, know, you guys, I'm taking the kingdom. The kingdom's going to be taken from you and given to somebody else. This brings, and when it was said to them, this is going to remind them of Assyrian Empire coming in and taking the northern kingdom. And it's going to remind them of the Babylonian kingdom coming in and taking the kingdom from them. And as far as they know, that may mean that Rome is going to take it away from them. And it did. In 70 AD, uh, the last, uh, the, the Jewish people tried the patience of the Romans to the, to the last degree, and they just said, that's it, we're done with you guys, and they destroyed the temple and, and sp spread the people out all through the Roman Empire, and because they were just finally through with them. They'd had enough of them. And that's when also Christianity started rising up. And for the last 2,000 years, God has been using the church to witness and bring people to Christ. We're coming to the last days when the church will be taken away and everything will go back to Jewish, the Jews again. For the seven years of the tribulation, it's going to be all about the Jewish people again. 144,000 Jewish in, uh, missionaries will be spreading the gospel and Satan will be trying to destroy the Jews and God will protect them miraculously. And if you want to study Revelation, you'll see all of how God's going to protect the Jewish people and how he's going to take them and hide them and, and keep them away from Satan. And then he, he spends a thousand years where rain is from Jerusalem. You know, basically, the rain is from Jerusalem. The, the sacrifices will be reestablished for the burnt offering and the Thanksgiving offering that we talked about last night, which have nothing to do with sacri you know, with the with uh, sin offerings and all the other different offerings that, that will go on because this, those two offerings were dedication and thanksgiving. And those will be the offerings that will be part of the religious worship for the millennial kingdom. He will rule with an iron rod. It will be very similar to Days of Eden other than the fact that people can sin. And yet he won't let them sin because he's going to rule with an iron rod. It's going to be a as far as we can see and understand, a perfect environment. You know, and, I've, and I kind of tease people, you know, we talk a lot about thought police. You know, we've got a lot of rules trying to you know, control our thoughts. But can you imagine God being the ultimate thought police? You know, you're thinking about stealing something, and you, you know, get a knock on the door from the, 
uh, from the angelic forces, uh, no, you're not going to steal that. <laughs> that, I, that I did. Well, I didn't do it, no, but you thought it, so you're not doing it. Uh, you know, he's going to stop the sin from happening, which is why when he gets to the end of the millennial kingdom, there are, Satan is going to raise an army to go fight against God, and it's going to be pretty easy to fight because there are going to be people who are going to be happy to finally be released to sin because that's what they wanted to do anyway. The millennial kingdom will be the last stand for God to show man that even in a perfect environment, you will still choose to rebel. Because what are we told by our higher education? Well, if man just had the freedom to do what he wants, he'd be perfect. Well, God's going to show them in a thousand-year period where they are perfect and no bad, no bad things happening, no temptations, you know, you're going to be, that man will still sin given the choice to show how evil we truly are in our heart. For us, good news for us, We've gone to heaven. We've got our glorified bodies. We will not sin during that period of time because we will have our glorified, perfect bodies for eternity. We will be the ones that help him rule during that period of time as long as we are Christians and followers of him before that happens. And those who die will get their glorified bodies and they won't have to worry. But during that period of time, it's going to be a test where God's going to say, okay, man, you think that if you lived in a perfect environment, you'd be okay. Let me show you that even in a perfect environment, and how we think that, I don't know, because the very first perfect environment didn't keep our parents from, from sinning. So why we think that somehow we can live in this utopian world that if we just had a perfect environment, we would, we would just be okay. It didn't happen in the past history, and it won't happen in the future, and God already tells us it won't happen. Man, given that chance, will turn away from God, because our desire is to do evil. Unless God crucifies our desires and changes us, our desire is always to do evil. And we need to understand that. When the world acts the way they do, I am never surprised. Why? Because I understand that the world is evil and that they want to do evil. And if you can come up and you really start understanding that, when the world attacks you, when the world does mean things, they are just being themselves. And they really have no choice. Now, when Christians do bad things, I'm not overly surprised. I'm saddened by it because they have the power to live in victorious life through Jesus Christ. But I also understand that they're living in the flesh and being who they are in the flesh. Makes me a little sadder but I, it doesn't surprise me. So the question is, I'm almost more surprised when people live according to God's lifestyle and, and, and do the things he wants because that means they're living with a crucified life and living in Christ. And I take pleasure in that because that shows me that they're growing. They're doing what God wants them to do. When they do anything else, they're being what the flesh wants them to be. So it's not a big surprise. And so when people do bad things, it's like, okay, God. Now, does that mean I'm happy about all of it? No, there's no way. I'm not happy, but it doesn't surprise me when, when somebody does something that stabs you in the back, that says something about you or tries to tear you down. It doesn't surprise me at all that they're doing it because the flesh desires to do that kind of stuff. 
And so we want to be careful. And it says from this point on, the Pharisees and the chief priests were looking for a way to arrest Jesus. In Mark, it tells us that they started sending spies out amongst his group. And even from here, we're going to start seeing a change. They're sending people in, and, and their, their attitude with Jesus from this point on is a little bit different. They'll be coming to him and saying, good master, and they give him some kind of question. You know, uh, you know master. You know, they're calling him master, teacher, rabbi. They're, they're using the right terms of, you know, hey, uh, we know that you're really this uh, really good teacher, but now can you explain this? And they pose some question that they think he can't get out of. Because they've been sitting in their little groups and go, well, you know, if we ask him this question and he answers this way, this group's going to be mad at him. If he answers this way, this group's going to be mad at him. We can start splintering up his, his support. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? We've got that today going on with the different political parties trying to splinter the, the, the groups against, against everybody and against each other. Not new. <laughs> Went on all the way through. They were trying to splinter his, his support. You know, if, we, if he answers this way, he'll be for, the, for Rome, and you know, so the zealots will be angry with him. And if he answers the other way, the zealots will be for him, and the, and the group that want peace with, the, with Rome will be mad at him. And they kept asking him all these different questions. You know, if we ask him, the religious people will be mad at him. And, you know, and they kept trying to ask him questions that tried to split it. And Jesus, in his wisdom, was able to answer all the questions in, in ways that just blew their minds. And so we're going to see that from this point on, we see a very heavy attack on Jesus from, from the leaders because they're just trying, they're trying to splinter his, his followers and hopefully have him say something that will be so bad that everybody will turn against him. Because if they can get the people to turn against him, then they can arrest him and, and have him killed because that's what they want to do. And the, the only thing stopping them at this point is the people think he's a prophet. The people are on his side, and if we arrest him, we're going to have a riot. And then Rome will step in, and, you know, and we will lose our power either way. He wins, and we lose our power because the people are against us, or Rome puts it down, and they take our power away from us because they also knew how precarious the situation was, with Rome was. Pilate, the ruler over that area, is in a precarious position. They have rioted so many times that when, when Jesus comes around, he has been told by Caesar, one more riot, and you lose your position. Okay? He's a politician. He's also a general, but he's a general now that's been running a country who does not want to have to go back to war. And he'd be lucky if he can be just reduced back to general. All right? So Pilate is in, a, is in between a rock and a hard place when they finally arrest Jesus. Because... If he releases him, he's got a riot. He's got a riot going on right now with him wanting him to kill Jesus. And if it goes out of hand, he's losing his position. What a problem you have when you put everything you have on the rewards of this world and have to make decisions based on what's good for where you're at at that moment. And our politicians today do that all the time. What's the best answer to keep me in office? Not what's the best answer to for the country, not what's the best answer for my constituents, but what's best to keep me in office is what they do. And Pilate was in that same point at this point. Uh, if he has another riot, he loses his position. 
And it's only a matter of time, and he knows it's only a matter of time until he has another riot with these crazy Jewish people who always are rioting because of some, something they do say or, or cross over their religious uh, activities. And there's always the zealots who are angry that Jerusalem is being ruled by somebody that's not a king line of King David. And the Romans are interlopers who need to be gotten rid of. And there's all these riots going on. And they're being terrorists. They really are being terrorists as far as Rome's concerned. Now, as far as they're concerned, they're not being terrorists. <laughs> but Rome considers them terrorists. They're, they keep making all these attacks and, and causing all these problems. And the more people they kill, the, the more people joining the zealots. <laughs> so what they normally do that normally works to cow the people is just making them more angry and more anxious to get rid of Rome. So they don't even know how to handle this. You can't let them keep doing what they're doing, and yet every time they step on them, more people for the release of Israel pop up out of the woodwork. Same thing that happens when they start killing Christians. They start killing Christians, and more Christians show up because their, their hope is different, and you know, they, they, they think different. We as Christians think so different from the world, the world does not know what to do with us. It really doesn't. You know, when we will stand up and say, no, this activity, this lifestyle that you're wanting to li live is a sin, and they say, well, you're judging us, and we go, yes, God says it's a sin. You know, we're supposed to back off. You know, when, I, when I was in school, the worst thing they could tell you was that you were intolerant, and that's still true today. You know, they, they tell you you're intolerant, you're just supposed to back off and just give up and, and say, okay, you're right. You're, you know. But when I was in school... And, and I would talk, they would talk about fornication or adultery or homosexuality or the murdering of babies as, as through abortion. And I would say things that go, well, that's just so intolerant. And I would always go, yes, it is. Thank you. Blew their minds because they had just given me the worst insult they could possibly give me. You're intolerant. You're not, you're not, you're not welcome in our society. And I'm telling them, thank you. You know, if... You know, if you're not able to be controlled by what normally controls somebody, it really throws off the opponent. Uh, because they look at it and say, well, I just insulted you with the worst insult that I could possibly give to you. You're supposed to fold like a house of cards and agree that it's okay. And you go, no. Why? Because our standard is, we have a standard. We don't have a house of cards to fold up. The Romans did not know how to handle the Jews. Because the Jews didn't fit into their paradigm. Didn't fit into the way they think. They did not know how to handle Christians because Christians were not looking at what do I get out of this world. They're looking at, I'm looking to heaven. So the more they give them a hard time, they're going, thank you for all the hard time. I'm, looking, I'm going to be rewarded in heaven. The, the Romans had no such philosophy. The Jews to the, at, at this time have, at, have no such philosophy. They don't really believe in heaven and hell. So they don't have something to look forward to. We as Christians have something greater that we're looking forward to, which motivates us to stay strong with God. All right, we're going to end here. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you care for us. And Lord, help us to stand strong for you in all things that we do. Help us to be looking to heaven for all that we do and, and seeking you and your rewards. Help us to be strong. Give us the power to stand for you as, as things get dark. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.